Uh, James chapter 1, we're going to read together the first 18 verses, or if you've got a Bible or you want to use your device, you can do that. James 1 verse, starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, uh, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's leave the reading of God's word there. It's handy to have that in front of you, um, because we're going to refer to it as we go through the message. If you're new with us this morning, again, just want to welcome you. Um, You've come at a good time, because we're just starting this morning to a new series. It's going to take us, um, uh, really, the next few months to look through this this amazing letter nestled away in the New Testament called James, or written by somebody called James. Um, and we're, we're going to look at that because I, I've actually taught on this before, but um, I'm coming to this with fresh eyes, fresh context, and I tell you what, when you read through it and when you take it seriously, um, it, it, is, it is like a sledgehammer uh, to your soul. And that, that, that's not always uh, necessarily a very comfortable thing, but sometimes we need uh, a jolt, don't we, um, to, to get us going again and to remind us of what's most important. And James delivers that week after week. Uh, and I hope it'll be my pleasure to de- uh, deliver that sledgehammer to you every week as well. Uh, we're, we're very used to in the church, um, particularly in, in maybe the wider world, thinking of those who are inside and outside the church. Uh, we consider ourselves perhaps to be inside, and, and those who are not here, by and large, are outsiders, right? You know, we who believe and those who do not believe. We think like that, binary. Um, or we think of those who are religious and those who are non-religious, who choose, uh, for whatever reason, not to follow any particular religious system, uh, largely because religion for them is, is a bad word. Um, so let's, not, let's, 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 let's avoid religion altogether. Look at all the harm it's done in our own province over the years and, and across our world, religion's bad. So therefore, if we avoid religion, um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get over the problems of our past. One reason, um, one other reason perhaps for people uh, to not like the idea of religion or joining a religion or being a part of religion is because they look in, specifically in our context, they look into the church, right? They they look in from outside, uh, directly or indirectly, and what they see, uh, 
they see, uh, it does not encourage them towards Christian faith or towards faith in Jesus. Because um, they look inside the church or from, from their vantage point and they see hypocrisy and they see religious pride and they see all sorts of things that they, they don't like. Uh, not saying it's all legitimate, but some of it's right. They, they look at Christians and say they're hypocrites and they, they believe these things and say these things, but really they're no better than the rest of us. In fact, they're often worse than the rest of us because they have this sort of religious veneer. And so the very idea of religion just turns our own society off. Uh, but the book of James that we're going to spend a lot of time over the next few weeks uh, examining uh, gives this very penetrating analysis to the, the, the theme of religion. And he doesn't say that uh, religion is, is to be uh, removed and let's just concentrate on Jesus. He says that there is actually a kind of religion that is good, a kind of religion that is real, a kind of religion that is, that is built firmly on the good news, the historic good news of Jesus Christ and who, he's, who he is and, and, and what he's done and what he did. And, and people, when they, they take that good news, that gospel, into uh, their hearts and they build their lives around that and they build their communities around that, that is real religion, according to James. That is the stuff of the Bible. That is the stuff that Jesus talked about, that his apostles taught about and died for, uh, the message. But James doesn't just leave it there, because we can kind of uh, understand that, I suppose, especially if you've uh, been brought up in a church background, we can kind of get those things. But, but James also says, look, within our churches, within our, our religious uh, organizations, there is also a fake form of religion. So, so what James does is write this letter to the churches uh, to help them to distinguish real religion from the fake stuff. Because his problem, and I believe it's our problem, not just looking at you guys, but in general, the church, uh, particularly in this province, is that uh, within any given church on any given Sunday, there are those who follow the real religion of Jesus Christ, taking them into their hearts, him into their hearts, and being totally transformed from the inside out by what he's done. That affects them, their practices, their behaviors, the way they spend their money, the people they hang out with, all that stuff. But there are those who look Christian, who meet in churches, who sound Christian, they've learned to act Christian in certain uh, parts of their lives, but they react very differently to life circumstances. In fact, they do not experience the same or anywhere, they don't experience any deep or long-lasting transformation that those who follow the real religion of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the problem for us. And that's the problem for us as a church, and that's the problem for, for James as he writes this, that within any church, there are those who follow real religion and those who follow the fake version. And the problem with fakes is that they look kind of like the original, the real stuff. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, um, you cannot build your life on fake religion because it doesn't last. And so we take this case in point today, and James says, look, uh, you, you, you've got this problem. There's a mixture within the church between real religion and fake religion. And, and, and let's consider then for, for today, and, and this particular part of what James is talking about, let's consider what happens when it comes to trials. Thank you very much. That's our Bible text for later. No, really it is. Um, what happens when trials come into your life? Because that is the first test, that is the first sledgehammer that James uh, lifts up. What do you do? How do you react when a trial comes into your life? Because that is one of the key ways that you can figure out for yourself if you are following real religion or fake religion. So as we go through this text, I want to point out three things. First of all, I want to show you from the text 
the effect of our trials. Secondly, I want to show you the, or, or think through the response to our trials. And thirdly, I want to show you the culmination or the, you know, the conclusion of our trials. So the effect of our trials, the response of our trials, and the culmination of our trials. First of all, the effects. Look down with me, please, at verses 2 through 4. Uh, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By the way, when you see the word brothers, he is referring to uh, those of the household, you know, brothers and sisters. It's not just referring to men, okay? Although it does, in the original Greek, it's brothers, but it's the whole church. Count it all joy, all of you, when you meet trials of various kinds. Every kind, every manner of trial, every type, every kind. Count it as joy. Let's just be clear what, what might be a trial in our lives and uh, your life. You know, we, we, we might consider something very minor to be a trial, or, you know, it's not minor at the time, of course. Being stuck in traffic is a trial, no doubt. It took me 50 minutes to do a, a journey that otherwise would have taken 10 minutes last Monday when I was taking Eliza to school. Um, that was a trial. <clears throat> it was annoying. Minor trial, though. Stubbing your toe, that's a trial. Missing your bus, dropping your toothbrush on the floor, that's a trial. Uh, the car park being bunged. These are all trials, right? But they're fairly minor, let's face it. But it gets worse, right? You know, there's, there's more significant trials that you or I will likely face in our lives at some point, whether it's poor health, you know, getting ill, getting sick, uh, difficult children, hard to bring up, getting the sack at work, having an accident, you know, falling into anxiety, falling into... Uh, you know, depths of depression and despair. That's a significant trial. And it, and it may become even more and more severe as time goes on. Some of the greatest trials that, that the human beings will face are that of bereavement. You know, being diagnosed with a ter terminal illness, falling into severe life-crippling debt, any kind of abuse, addictions, persecutions, war, poverty. Trials of various, various kinds. In short, a trial is anything and everything that will lead you to question your view of God, your view of yourself, and your view of the world. And trials are like a jolt or a shock to your life to reconsider the big questions. And with that in mind, James writes, consider it all joy when trials of various kinds come to you, which just sounds incredibly Mad. It sounds crazy, right? To think of those things joyfully. But according to James, I want to show you this. That is the mark of real religion. If you are able to see your trials and see the joy that comes from them. Now, just to be clear, what he's not saying is that the trial itself is, is good or is joyful or will make you happy. That's a superficial understanding of what James is saying. But he goes on to explain what he means. He says, for, for, therefore, you know, this is the reason why. In verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is a, a, another way of saying endurance or perseverance. It will produce that in you. And then he goes on to say, and let that steadfastness have its full effect that you might be, listen, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is why you are to consider it all joy when trials come your way. Not because the trials themselves are joy-provoking, but what they can lead to if you allow them. Perfection. In other words, maturity. Completion. He's saying it is impossible, sorry, it is possible to respond in such a way that your endurance, your resilience, your character will be built up 
to the stage that you will look more and more like Jesus Christ. And that comes through trials. Isn't that amazing? You see, trials expose our beliefs. It's relatively easy, let's face it, to come to church and say, Jesus Christ, you're my living hope. It's only when you go through a trial that you start to realize to yourself and other people will see you and say, is Jesus really her living hope? Is he really his living hope? It's a trial. You see, if you follow the fake religion that he's trying to expose within our churches, you will start to see trials as punishment in your life. Or failing that, you will start to see trials as pointless. They're just a distraction from enjoying life. And so you'll try to ignore them or or medicate against them or, or, or minimize them, but you will end up joyless and lifeless. That's what happens if you build your life on fake religion. If you build your life on fake religion, when trials come, you will become increasingly consumed with anger and bitterness towards God, towards yourself and towards other people. God, because he let this stuff happen to you. How can he possibly do that? Whereas, according to James, if you follow the real religion of the Bible, the real religion of Jesus Christ and his gospel, you will grow in steadfastness and eventually you will be mature, complete, lacking nothing. Can you see the difference? that he's starting to show. And we'll see that all through the letter. Why is it, though, do you think that your faith, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, why does it need testing? What's wrong with just having faith and then everything going well? Well, think about it for for a moment. Um, For example, I I quite often ask, Lord God, give me patience, because I realize patience is not something I have in uh, my wife will agree. I don't have overflowing amounts of patience. I want it and I need it. And I, and I pray, Lord, give me patience. And I'm, I'm confident he hears my prayer and he's, he will respond and say, yes, I'll give you patience. But you see, it's only when I'm sat in the traffic seeing nothing but red lights that I have an opportunity to actually be tested in my patience. It's all very well, isn't it, asking for patience when you don't really need it, but it's when you need it. It needs to be tested in order to grow. It's the same analogy we can see in marriage as well. Again, I don't want to bring disparagement on the day itself. You know, the marriage day, the wedding day can be a lovely day, wonderful day, but let's face it, uh, for those of us who are married and married any length of time, you'll know it's relatively easy to stand up and make promises to one another and have a great day, and that's wonderful. With my body, body, I honor you. All that I am, I, I, I give to you in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's relatively easy to just simply recite those things. And yet, that marriage has not yet been tested because the kids haven't come along, most often. Um, Stresses in life have not been put onto that marriage to test it, like a new bridge. You know, you want to put a load on top of it to test it. Personality glitches that you may have overlooked or not seen have not yet come up to the surface. Ill health has not afflicted one or either of you in, in the marriage. See, when those trials come, when those tests come, then you will know. Then it will be tested. And so we see the same thing when it comes to Christian faith. Unless we go through trials, we will never grow in our maturity in Jesus. We'll never grow in our integrity. Real religion, you see, always involves suffering to get to where God wants us to be. And if you don't like that, I'm afraid, I don't like it, but we just need to look at Jesus and realize what he went through in order to bring us to life and and peace and maturity and reconciliation to God. 
the perfect Son of God come in the flesh, and yet Hebrews 2.10 says, Jesus was made perfect through what? Through suffering. He learned obedience through what he suffered, he goes on to say. Or in uh, Hebrews, uh, later on, Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, you see, in the gospel, gave himself to be tested for us. And we who follow him and name his name, we can expect similar. Not in the same way that he went through it. That was one time. That was cosmic, his suffering. But for us, testing is God, one of God's methods to bring us deeper, to bring us into a richer, fuller faith in him, a greater love and appreciation for him and the gospel. See, trials, according to James, can produce calmness. They can produce a certain poise in our inner being, a certain resoluteness that those, those things will be completely absent in fake religion because it despises suffering, doesn't see it as joy, a chance to grow. So I wonder about you this morning. And if this chime with you, um, do you, do you count your trials as joy? Do I count them as joy? Honestly, not all the time, not nearly enough. Do I want to? Yes, yes. I want to take the text here and, and I want to receive it with faith. And I want that for all of us here as well. But are your trials something that you will embrace as a chance to learn and grow into the image of Jesus Christ, or is it something you're going to neglect and minimize because you don't see the point and purpose of the whole thing? Do you see it as a punishment or as an opportunity? Real religion versus fake religion. So that's the effect of our trials, joy, because of what it will do. So let's look now um, further on down the text, and we're going to ask now about our response to trials, okay? So the effect of trials, our response to trials, and, and, and we can see that uh, briefly in this brief overview in three realms. We can respond in the realm of our minds, respond in the realm of our material possessions, and respond in the realm of our beliefs about God, okay? And just so you know, uh, these are themes that James sort of introduces here, and then we see them picked up again later through the letter. So this is a bit of an introduction um, to get things going. Right, so our response to trials, according to James, in the realm of our minds, first of all. Look down at verse 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom, that is wisdom to deal with trials. Okay, that's the context we're dealing with here. If you lack wisdom, then you can ask God, he says, and he will give generously more wisdom. How do I respond in this trial, Lord? What do you want me to do? What is the best way for me to act so that, so that I may learn from this trial and grow in Christ-likeness? That's the kind of wisdom we're talking about here. And God, it says, when he hears that prayer of faith from you who wants to learn and grow in your wisdom, he will give generously. We don't often delve into the, into the Greek every Sunday behind every verb and every word here, but that word generously is just delightful. Uh, the, the Greek uh, word behind that that's been translated here generously literally means single eye or a sound eye, a healthy eye. What, 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 what is being said here is that God gives with a single eye, a single mind, a single view on you. He, at that moment and that time, effectively wants nothing more than to give you that wisdom 
can think of nothing else but to give you that wisdom generously to pour it upon you. God gives generously. You don't need to worry or question his response. That is his nature. He wants to give you wisdom to deal with your trials. Ask him. And it says he gives without reproach, which is a bit of an old-fashioned word, I suppose, or an old-fashioned way of saying he gives without finding a fault in you. He gives ungrudgingly. Not because you don't have faults, right? We all have faults. But he overlooks that through his son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel. And he gives without reproach. He gives ungrudgingly. Folks, when you come to trials, it is so important. Look at God's heart right here. Look at his desire to give wisdom everything you need. He is not pointing the finger at you. He is not examining your shortcomings. When it comes to trials, God is not angry with you. He does not permit trials to come into your life to crush you, to destroy you, even to punish you. That has all been taken away by Jesus through the cross. He received punishment so you won't have to. So when trials come into your life, that is not what is going on. Instead, it is an opportunity, as we've seen, for you to strength, be strengthened, to be purified, for you to be made glorious in his sight. That's what God wants to do with you through your trials. That's real religion. You see, the fake stuff doesn't even come close because the the God, inverted commas, of fake religion is not a loving, wise, generous God. The God of fake religion is miserly. He is cold. If you believe that's the kind of God that that you follow, he doesn't want to give you any blessing. He doesn't want to help you through this. This is just punishment. This is because you've done something wrong. Then you will turn into a miserly, cold follower of that God. It's not the real God. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of fake religion. But that's what will happen to you. It goes on to say, uh, lack wisdom, ask in faith, don't, don't doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person uh, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. he's dealing here, James is dealing here with those who follow fake religion who just can't make up their minds about God one way or the other. Is he or isn't he? Is he there or is he not there? They can't settle. And and you might see Christians like this. You might might know Christians like this who at one moment appear religious and quite upstanding and righteous type people, good living, and the next moment irreligious, completely as if they don't believe in God and he hasn't made any difference in their lives and their behaviors and their actions and their words. And so some people, some Christians, quote-unquote, uh, who follow this fake religion, according to James, will flip in and out, just like chameleons. They'll be different depending on their contexts, depending on who they're hanging out with, whether at work or at home or at church. They've learned to look and sound Christian when it suits them, when it's plain sailing, but yet when you examine their practices, the way they live, their ethics, when you examine the way they spend their money, the relationships they have, it might suggest otherwise. This is what happens in fake religion, you see. Just flip around. The problem is, of course, if you follow fake religion, there is no real God of that religion, and God, the real God, won't answer your prayer in verse 7 because you don't really believe in him anyway. You don't really have real faith in him. So first of all, the response of our trials in the realm of our minds must be, if you want to follow the real religion, if you want to learn from your trials, ask God who gives generously, and he will supply that wisdom. The realm of our minds, the realm of our... Mm, Uh, material possessions. Just a quick one here. 
um, only because he mentions it in the text. I don't want to go over it, but we're going to come to this in more detail in the next few weeks. In the realm of our uh, material possessions, verses 9 through 11, the trial of money. The trial of money. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. The lowly or the rich, those who have plenty or who have little. Both of them are trials, by the way. Both of them will show the kind of religion that you follow. And we'll see this again, as I say, uh, a number of times. James picks this theme up. But if you follow the real religion, according to James, you will respond rightly to money, whether you have loads of it or whether you have none of it, in your estimation or in reality. If you have plenty, you will boast in how lowly you are and how God will lift up someone as sinful as you. That is what happens when you follow real religion, right? It's countercultural. Likewise, he says, if those uh, who have very little, who are, who are poor, poverty even, they will boast in how much God has lifted them up, how much glory he has given them, how much he has made them sons and daughters of the king. That's what happens when you follow real religion and the trial of money comes upon you. Follow the fake religion, it's all upside down. If you have no money, you will tend to become bitter. You will tend to even develop a victim mentality. I should have that stuff that they've got. I should be getting paid while they're getting paid. They become lowly and bitter, and the rich get even worse. They become proud and arrogant. They think, I've earned this because I'm great. I've, I've, I've earned this, unlike those poor people over there. And so the rich become hard of heart. This is what happens when you follow fake religion. you'll respond to the trial of money badly. So, in the realm of our natural, sorry, material possessions. More of that later. Thirdly and finally, in the, the realm of our beliefs about God. You see this in verses 13 through 18. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt anyone with evil. Again, you see, James is pointing to another error that comes along with fake religion. Let no one say that God has tempted me. Let no one say it was his fault that I'm like this. Let no one say that God was wrong. If he hadn't have tempted me, then I would be in the right. I would be okay. That is a lie, according to James. That is a part of fake religion. God, as he goes on to show us, is unmixed goodness. God is unmixed holiness. He is infinite in his perfections. And as such, he says, God cannot tempt because he, uh, you know, cannot be tempted with evil because he himself uh, tempts no one. Instead, James says, no, 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 the reason why you're so messed up, uh, the reason why these things have happened to you is because of your heart. Verse 14, each person is indeed is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Very encouraging not. This is what happens when you believe a lie about God. You see, when you're being tested, start believing a lie about God. Instead, in real religion, testing brings steadfastness, brings perfection and completion. God doesn't tempt. He doesn't bring wrong. It's not his fault. God, on the other hand, as this verse shows is the giver, in verse 17, of every good and perfect gift. I love this terminology. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Just evokes this uh, imagery, doesn't it, of the planets and the sun, you know, the planets revolving around the sun. And the sun, 
of course, casts no shadow, unlike the planets. The planets are always intermingling and casting shadow upon one another. The planets are all turning on their axes, getting dark and light, dark and light, shadow, eclipses, all that stuff, but not the sun. There's no shadows in the sun. Okay, if you're a PhD in physics, you'll know there actually are shadows, but that's not the point I'm getting at, okay? There are dark bits and light bits, I know that, but in theory, work with me, okay? Philosophically, there, there is no darkness in the sun, it is pure light. It is pure radiance. It is pure energy. The planets come and go. They're dark and light, different points, but not so with God, says James. He is the father of lights. There is no shadow in him. When he turns, there's no, sorry, there's no shadow of turning. There's no movement. God is unchangeable. He is complete light. He is complete goodness. When trials come along, do not be tempted, says James, to believe a lie about God, that he is not those things, that he is not light. Don't believe the lie that we saw Adam and Eve believe right at the start in the Garden of Eden that God is not good, does not want the best for you, he is not your father, he is not loving. That is a lie. You see, we can respond wrongly to trials in the realm of our mind and our, our belief about God. So we thought a bit about the effect of our trials, that it can produce joy within you if you see the point and purpose of it. We've seen the response to our trials in the realm of our minds, in the realm of our natural possessions, and just think there briefly about the realm of our beliefs about God. But I want to point and just end on this, this note of hope for you this morning. I want to show you that the culmination of our trials is that joy, is that completion. Look down, please, with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's the culmination of trials, folks. That's why we hang on tight to God and his promises because of verse 12, James 1, verse 12. Write that one and stick that on your fridge. Remember that one coming into the week. Happy, blessed, steadfast is the one under trial because they have responded well to trials. They have listened to the wisdom and, and, and teaching of James they have chosen to follow Jesus Christ in the real religion. They've asked for wisdom. They've received it. They've used it. They've put it into action. They've been shaped. They've been changed by God's grace. As they have negotiated this trial, whatever it may be, they've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, eventually, ultimately, they will receive the crown of life. This future bestowal of great blessing awaits all of us as we endure. I want to end by reading you a story. It just takes a few moments. This excellent book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, by Tim Keller. It's one of his best, I believe. And uh, at the end of each chapter, he gets um, people who have genuinely uh, walked through trials and um, shared their experiences. So this is not the words of Keller. This is the words of um, people in his church. I want to read this to you as we close. Uh, the story uh, is entitled The Sweetness of Life with God by Mark and Martha, these two, husband and wife. And each one is, is, is write, writing, so I'll just say the names out as we go through. So Martha says this, As my husband, Mark sits in his wheelchair, unable to move anything but his eyes, and that being increasingly difficult. We're approaching the 10-year point in our journey. It began with a small muscle twitch when Mark was 48 years old, and within a month, our doctor diagnosed the cause as the terminal illness ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. 
We had been married 25 years and had four children. We always had been an active family, so Mark's quick physical demise was devastating. When Mark got sick, I fell into a black hole of despair. I didn't know how I was going to live through the pain of the coming days. I asked all my friends to pray for the fear of tomorrow would not rob me of joy for today, but I was really struggling. I wondered, who, I, who am I if I'm not Mark's wife? Today, I understand the idolatry in that, that statement and why the despair was so deep. I had identified most deeply with Mark as my husband and provider. In my eyes, I had put him before God. How I moved out of despair is a mystery. I had no awareness of being called forth, yet I experienced a sense of resurrection. During those early days, Mark and I quoted every verse you could think of about God's care. We attempted to find ways to beat into our hearts the love and faithfulness of God. We planted our feet in the truth that we understood, even though everything in our lives seemed otherwise. Mark writes this, using a computer that captures eye movements. I played sports in my younger years, and I always hated sitting on the bench. One day, just after my diagnosis, I cried out to God that I thought I was being pulled out of the game when I still had something to offer. His response was, you've been on the sidelines for some time. You're just now getting going in the game. Hanging on to God's truth, uh, that, that, sorry, the truth that God um, is doing much more than I can't see, uh, and that his economy, uh, it is worth all the suffering, uh, but it's also a daily exercise of faith. The body of Christ moved into our lives in very tangible ways. Friends helped with meals, gave gift cards, did yard work, planned birthday parties for our kids, came and were just present. Even 10 years into our journey, we still have many people reaching out to us uh, for support and strength and love. Martha writes this. There were so many things at the beginning that I didn't think I could live through emotionally. One of those was picking a place to bury Mark. My daughters and I went one day to find a place. There was a tenderness between us and even laughter. I sensed God saying to me, I'm here. In all those places you don't think you'll be able to face, I will be there. It was a day of significance in sensing his presence with me. Not just that day, but for everything that lay ahead. Mark again. I have found that singing hymns and African-American spirituals in my head, uh, because I've not been able to speak for the last eight years, has been helpful. Many hymns are about suffering and speak deeply to my sense of uh, my need for a sense of his presence with me in the midst of my pain. These hymns are treasures that modern Christian music doesn't even approach. Some of the best reminders of this world and its troubles are not our true home. Recently, I've been diagnosed with a terminal liver disease, something I say that I am, uh, sometimes I say I'm unfairly suffering. But the only one who went through suffering unfairly was Jesus. His separation from the Father on the cross is far beyond anything I could ever experience. How can I complain when he went through that cosmic pain for me? I remember Tim Keller relating the story of a man who was terminally ill and who told him that the sweetness of this life with God, as a result of his illness, he wouldn't trade for more years. I have found that to be true in my life as well. Martha, finishing. We have found meaning, purpose, joy, growth, and wholeness in our loss. How much I would have missed if I had, had have opted out of this season. God has had so much to give me in the midst of it. I see how intense sorrow and intense sweetness are mingled together. The depth and richness of life has come in suffering. How much I have learned and how much sweeter Jesus is to me now. Let's pray.